I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by our wonderful sponsors at the $10 tier and above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Once again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Producers credit shoutouts to Mark Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Dan, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Ish, Orc, Black Tuna, Nobody, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Belden, Trans Natural Pod, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mere M E E R Project. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining them in supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, longtime friend of the show and returning guest, journalist Albert Lanmere returns to take us down into the catacombs, as he likes to call them, of the Inslaw Affair, a murky story involving something known as the Promise Software, the Department of Justice, corruption at the Cabazon Indian Reservation, and a conspiratorial cabal, referred to as The Octopus, by journalist Danny Casalaro before his suicide in 1991. As it turns out, the story also involves the late media mogul Robert Maxwell, the father of Ghislaine Maxwell, now known as the infamous associate of Jeffrey Epstein. So, with that being said, let's get right to it with Albert Lanier. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a longtime friend of the show and multi-time guest. Uh, First time back in a while, Albert Lanier, freelance journalist and also uh, just sort of an investigative reporter for Parallax Views. He's sort of our correspondent on various unsolved mysteries and, uh, you know, crime cases. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, and how are you? 
Good, good. And I wanted to have you back on the show because uh, you're on a bit of a media tour and we can talk about that. Uh, but mm-hmm. you wanted to talk with me about the connection of media mogul Robert Maxwell, now known uh, because he is the father of uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. So, you know, Jeffrey Epstein and whatnot. Uh, but Robert Maxwell, the late Robert Maxwell, uh, is tied into this scandal known as the uh, Promise or, or Promise uh, scandal, which is related to something known as Inslaw. Uh, we're going to really have to start from the beginning here. So uh, what is the, the Promise Inslaw scandal? All right. Well, basically, the Promise Inslaw scandal begins a number of years ago, and it's best to as all things, to kind of start from the beginning. Now, the beginning in regards to promise, it's best to understand what promise is. And promise means prosecutor's management information system. What this essentially is, is case management software. Now, in and of itself, that sounds kind of innocuous, kind of normal, everyday kind of computer software, uh, considering the year that we're in, 2022. But this was back in the 1980s when this was being developed for U.S. prosecutors' offices. I'm sure to say federal prosecutors' offices, U.S. attorneys' offices. So essentially the idea for Promise came from a man by the name of William Hamilton. Now, William Hamilton himself had been a contractor who was working um, during the Vietnam War in putting up listening posts involved with listening posts that would monitor uh, North Vietnamese forces, basically Viet Cong forces. And he ended up working, I think, exclusively at the NSA uh, National Security Agency. Um, the joke about the NSA is it's called no such agency, but that's a whole different story, I guess. Um, now, He was working at the NSA, and he had the idea for Promise. I think uh, he was also kind of fluent in, uh, from what I understand, Vietnamese. He was working on like a a dictionary uh, that was like English and Vietnamese. So he was working on, I guess he had his kind of pet projects. And the idea for Promise was something that came up for William Hamilton. And basically... To explain that, um, now I'm not a tech guy, so I admit uh, not as versed in high tech and technology as people who code or or who are computer programmers and so forth are. So forgive me if this sounds very simplistic for those who are well versed in tech out there. But basically, um, what you had years ago, as I mentioned, from our standpoint in 2022, this kind of case management. Uh, software or information software seems rather pedestrian and boilerplate. But years ago, what you had in regards to computer databases, especially in, say, the late 70s and early 80s, basically what you had were databases for either government agencies or even companies, corporations. And basically these databases could only be used, meaning computer databases, could only be used in and of themselves. They were kind of standalone. So these databases couldn't interface with other databases or with other kinds of uh, computers, from what I understand. So essentially what PROMIS was, 
was what is known as relational software, meaning it was software that could interact and interface with other databases. And I, I gather other computers as well. And although there were companies that were working on relational databases, the Promise software, the Promise program was likely the best relational database and best program out there because it was able, as part of its case management information structure, to organize files, have them arranged, and allow access to files and what was in files uh, within this program. And so what, at first, you think this is basic standard office software. But what happened was that this software eventually came to be modified. It came to be tinkered with. It came to be, um, to use the term enhanced, right? But that's a tricky phrase because it deals with promise. So like I said, um, Hamilton got this idea to work on relational database, uh, database and a program, which is what the promise was. And so he decided to go ahead and work on this on the software while he was an employee with the NSA. And he got a grant from what was uh, then the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, or LEAA, which had been, I think, a subset of the Department of Justice. He got this grant to help finance and uh, work on the PROMIS software and the PROMIS program. Uh, eventually, this uh, LEAA got uh, rescinded by Congress, so it's no longer around. Now, essentially what happened um, was that Hamilton decided with PROMIS. So it's fair to say at this point, when we look at PROMIS, it's fair to say that you have PROMIS that Hamilton worked on as part of, as an employee of NSA. I will, for all intents and purposes, call this primary PROMIS, right? Then there was what I think Hamilton and some others have turned enhanced promise. Now, this is what I also call the proprietary promise, proprietary program, because what happened was that Hamilton ended up buying a company called INSLAW, or an organization called INSLAW, uh, the Institute for Social Law and Research, and he wanted to turn this into a for-profit company that would license and sell the promise software. So, I think he uh, had this set up or was sending this up about 1981 or so. So he left the NSA in order to be able to be involved with this company, which he was involved with with his, with his wife, Nancy, I believe. Um, so he got this company off the ground in terms of trying to get it to be the firm that would sell Promise to corporations, companies, government agencies, all kinds. And so his first client was essentially, and it looks like his only client, um, unfortunately, was the Department of Justice. And as I had mentioned before, the Department of Justice would be using this software for its U.S. attorney's offices, so federal prosecutors. And this would be using, uh, be used to manage cases because like any legal office, like any law enforcement capacity, you have a number of cases. Um, and, you know, 
keeping them neatly organized and structured and filed away is important, right? So that was what Promise was initially created to be, case management information software used uh, in this case uh, on a contractual basis with the Department of Justice, more specifically their U.S. attorney's offices or federal prosecutor's office. Now, from what and I this understand- this is all happening under Reagan. That's correct. This is copying under the Reagan administration very early on, uh, which is a which is a which is a good point to bring out. Now, when we look at what occurred, now what's important to note was that Inslaw and ha William Hamilton and his wife had a contract with the DOJ. Now, reportedly, from what I understand, the contract was about ten million dollars to be paid over three years, right? To, to I guess, get the Department of Justice uh, to get this software into U.S. attorney's offices and, and to have them be able to install it, put it up, and ready to go with the software. Now, the first year of the contract, there were payments made to Inslaw. But what happened was, the last two years weren't paid. They got frozen out after the first year. And so this created a problem for Inslaw and, of course, for Hamilton and his wife, because now you have a client, meaning the Justice Department, who aren't paying. They're not, they're not paying According, you know, they're not even paying in terms of the contract that they have. So you have a contract with a client, in this case, the Justice Department, and they've decided to hold payment and not to pay out after first year payment on a three year contract. I guess what what, what sort of occurs uh, after Hamilton starts catching on to this fact? Well, what happens is that eventually Inslaw was driven into bankruptcy because, you know, you have a client, they're not paying, and it's like any business, you know, you need constant inflow of, uh, of payments and re thus revenue to in order to keep your business afloat. And the Hamiltons weren't able to keep Inslaw afloat. They weren't able to keep their business afloat. They were essentially driven into bankruptcy um, by the Department of Justice. In fact, what happened later on was they went to bankruptcy court and the Hamiltons filed suit against the DOJ. I believe the amount that I've that I've seen reported amount was about $30 million, right? So they went to federal bankruptcy court. And in 1987, judge in federal bankruptcy court at the time, a judge, George Basin, ruled in favor of Inslaw and the Hamiltons and against the DOJ. And what Basin had found, I believe this was based on not only memoranda, but also um, what some employees had stated through testimony, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was that the DOJ had essentially grabbed a hold of, I'll just say stole, the promise software. And the words that Basin used was that promise was obtained, quote, through, quote, trickery, fraud, and deceit. These were Basin's words, or judge, then Judge Basin's words. 
Um, and so though Basin found in favor of the Hamiltons and they were awarded, according to that verdict, more than $6 million in damages. What kind of trickery, fraud, and deceit? I assume you're going to get into that. Right. Well, the fact of the matter was, for one, not paying off the contract. So they delayed payments. In fact, they froze payments. But also, what we'll later get into was the fact that the Hamiltons became aware later on that their software was being essentially not only pirated, but being sold elsewhere in the world without their approval, without their say-so. And again, the point that I made before is important to note. Remember that Hamilton set up, took Inslaw, turned it into, was trying to turn it into a for-profit corporation or for-profit company in order to sell and license the Promise software. So this brand of, of Promise that he had developed, which was known as Enhanced Promise, was meant to be proprietary. Now, notice before I said primary promise, which he had worked on before, that was created under the auspices of the DOJ. Version is the enhanced version of promise was meant to be sold on the market. So in other words, it's proprietary software. It's meant to be sold to various clients. I guess that would include companies and other corporations, as well as governments and other agencies. That was what that enhanced promise let's just say, improved promise was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a private, marketed, proprietary piece of software. And what happened was, essentially, the Department of Justice pirated the software, and eventually the federal government had the software sold, sold off to other countries. And that's what the Hamiltons became aware of later on. So when you talk about trickery, fraud, and deceit, you're talking about a contract for three years of only which one year of payment was made, and the other two years were denied. You also get the fact that this software, which was meant to be proprietary and was essentially proprietary, was basically pirated and stolen and sold by the U.S. federal government. So. If that isn't trickery, fraud, and deceit, I don't know what is. So I guess the question that arises from that is, to, to what end? Why would the Justice Department do this? Hmm. Well, that's where we get into the deeper levels when it comes to this, right? Here's what I would say from what I had looked at years ago when I first researched INSLAW and PROMIS and the octopus, of course, but INSLAW and PROMIS. Um, here's just my take on it. I believe that the DOJ felt that that software was theirs because Hamilton was a employee of the NSA and had developed it under the auspices of the NSA. Also, they understood, as I mentioned before, the power of this relational Software. You got to keep in mind the way databases were set up years ago, you know, these standalone databases. But they also realized what could be done with PROMIS, and that's more important, that this wasn't just case management information software, that you could turn, you could modify, you could tweak, you could improve upon this software 
and use it for ends that had nothing to do with case management, but had to do with possibly law enforcement and certainly intelligence gathering. In other words, you could use it for spying. Pretty much. Because when you look at what happened with Promise, that's essentially what it was turned into. It was turned into an instrument of spycraft. So maybe you could explain that a little bit more. Because So my understanding is that the software, if, if we are, are to believe um, the, the, the way the story is presented, um, that essentially uh, this software, the modified version, had backdoors uh, that would allow right. – uh, you know, you could sell the software and then essentially spy on the people who bought it from you. Precisely. That's essentially that's essentially what it was used to do. So you just described what Promise was used for, what eventually it was used for. So what happened was, as I had noted, they had uh, – the Hamiltons had gone to federal bankruptcy court. They had sued the government. They had gotten – or they were awarded supposedly more than $6 million in damages. But it was like a number that I, I've seen 6.8, I've seen 8 million. Well, I'll just say 6 to 8 million, right? Um, what happened was the D.C. Court of Appeals reversed the case. And they did it on a technicality, which was that they stated that the federal bankruptcy court did not have jurisdiction to hear the case. So... What happened was eventually the U.S. House Judiciary Committee and, of course, the U.S. Congress, which was under the at that time under a Democrat from Texas named Jack Brooks, they had, I believe, done a three-year investigation from about was it 89 until I think about 91 or so, if I'm not mistaken. But they did a three-year investigation into INSLAW and the promise and, and what happened with the promise. And so eventually in 1992, um, what occurred was that the you had hearings on Capitol Hill over um, you had hearings on Capitol Hill over the Inslaw case. I believe it was known as the Inslaw affair. Um, and so, and so what happened was the House Judiciary Committee had looked into the matter. As I mentioned before, they had done an investigation. This was shared by Jack Brooks of Texas, Democrat. And they started looking in. They had hearings. Now, as a part, what happened was before this, um, the Hamiltons, who were being represented at the time by uh, anyone who is familiar with U.S. history will probably have heard of Elliot Richardson, who was a former attorney general under Richard Nixon and who resigned uh, during the Watergate scandal because he refused to uh, abide by what Nixon demanded of him during that scandal. Uh, they, the Hamiltons were represented by Elliot Richardson as their legal counsel. And so they were obviously taking part in this House Judiciary Committee hearing, which was in 1992. So what happened was that a man by the name of Michael Reconosciuto had contacted the Hamilton 
And what he said was, I believe he may he may have been one of the individuals that told them that the Promise software was being not only pirated by the federal government, but being sold elsewhere. What Reconosciuto told uh, Hamilton and his wife was that he had been hired to modify and basically upgrade, if you could call it that, but he had been hired to modify the Promise software. Now, from what I understand of his, in fact, he filed an affidavit because as a part of this hearing, he was going to be, I believe they were looking at him as a potential witness, right, to testify in regards to this hearing on Capitol Hill, the House Judiciary Committee. And what happened was that Reconosciuto had uh, filed an affidavit or made an affidavit. Now, I believe as part of his affidavit, what he noted was that he was brought aboard to modify the Promise software with a backdoor feature that I guess was password protected. So if you had the right code, you could, or password, you could get in, and as you noted before, you could look at all the information that was in the program, the files. And so essentially what was done with the software was that it was used as a sort of tracking device. It was used to track individuals, uh, groups, all kinds of, all kinds of aspects. Yeah, I, th- I think um, there's even a connection with the... Uh... What is it? The Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Right. Well, they were supposedly one of the agencies that got Promise Software because what it ended up being, it ended up being sold to a number of intelligence agencies in a number of countries. So a number of countries got their hands on Promise. Essentially, it was sold to them. Right. So when we're looking at the Promise software itself, right? What happened is this supposed case management software, because it could interact with different databases, it could interact with, I guess, different systems. It was then turned into essentially a de facto tracking instrument. I called it an instrument of spycraft. But it's essentially turned into a de facto uh, tracking instrument in order to track all kinds of things keep tabs on, for example, um, if you installed it in a bank, and and I supposedly this promise when it was sold uh, as software, these, I guess, pirated versions or these versions of promise was installed in a bank and it could keep track of different accounts. So, again, what happened was Reconosciuto has stated in his affidavit that he was brought on to modify the Promise software. And he supposedly modified it at Cabazon Indian Reservation in Indio, California. Now, there were a couple other places, I believe, that were mentioned. I think Florida and Maryland. But primarily, it's Indio, California and the Cabazon Indian Reservation. Real, real quick. That's where he had... Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you this, because... Reconosciuto, um, 
a lot of people will say, and I'm not trying to be really adversarial about this, but I, I can see why people would say, well, Reconosciuto is a bit of a sketchy character himself. I think he was, um, mm-hmm. he went to jail for possession of methamphetamine and uh, intent to distribute that, um, a conspiracy to manufacture and distribute methamphetamine. So people will say uh, Reconosciuto tells tall tales and you can't really be trusted. Uh, well, why do you think that, um, you know, there's something to Reconosciuto's testimony? Um, well, you know, we know that we know, um, well, Hamilton himself, I know, uh, believed that Reconosciuto had worked on the software. And Reconosciuto, from what I understand, had a real, he was kind of like a, a a scientific technical prodigy when he was younger. Very talented, very skilled individual. Um, he's described, I think, by some people, I think one or two people, as like a computer programmer and a chemist. Uh, so very, very technically gifted person, from what I understand. Um, again, I would agree that, and, and this is why I kind of use the terms alleged and reported when Wakanashudo, because he is not seen as a credible source, primarily because he was arrested in 1991, as you mentioned, on um, on methamphetamine charges. I think intent to sell or supposedly distribution and creation of crystal methamphetamine. So that's tainted his reputation, clearly. Uh, but you could also, some would argue that he was arrested on these charges. I think he... I think he denied the charges, uh, but he was arrested on it as a matter of political expediency. Now, again, people can believe what they want. The facts are the facts. But I would just state what Reconosciuto himself stated, and I go with it from the standpoint of, and I think it's safe to say, alleged and reported. He did file an affidavit. He did do an affidavit. And in the affidavit, he states that he modified the software and installed a backdoor feature, which would be password protected, and with the right password or code, people could access it. And as I mentioned, it was very clear that the Promise software was created, was was uh, improved upon and changed to turn it into a tracking type use, tracking type software and tracking type system that can be used by law enforcement and intelligence services. After all, why would people want to, why would countries want to pay so much money, reportedly millions upon millions of dollars, for case management software that could easily just be used in simple offices? I mean, there had to be more to the Promise software, and that was the whole point. There was more. It was reportedly modified. It was changed. It was adapted to be turned into what I call an instrument of spycraft. And again, whether you believe Reconosciuto or not, we do know there were, here's what I will say. Now, this is an interesting point. Now, again, I use the term catacombs, right? So going deep into like the Paris catacombs, all those tunnels, that's what I call Inslaw and Promise. Um, catacombs. Um, this whole affair, and the octopus itself. But um, now, 
what's noteworthy when we talk about the fact that Reconosciuto had stated that he worked on this software at Indio, California, Cavazon Indian Reservation. In July of 1981, three individuals, Fred Alvarez, Patty Castro, and Ralph Bogart, were killed, um, I believe, in, uh, I think it was Palm Springs, California, or in that area. Uh, this this is what's Hope known Rock. as the octopus murders, right? Um, I guess you could call it that. Um, I I equate it, I, I, I call it more Cabazon Indian Reservations murders, but I guess people could call it. Now, Fred Alvarez himself was the chairman of Cabazon Indian, was a tribal chairman of in, Cabazon Indian Reservation, and he was not happy with what was going on there. Supposedly, there was a deal to form Cabazon Arm between uh, a member of Cabazon Indian Reservation and I uh, believe an official from Wackenhut. And so... What, what is Wackenhut for the, people that are unfamiliar? Wackenhut is a security company. Okay, go on. Um, yeah. So when we look at this, we know that not only on Cabazon Indian Reservation, but also on some other tribal lands, I believe the Santa Rosa and the, uh, the Martinez, you had weapons testing going on 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 in those you know on the grounds of those uh, tribal reservations right um and so in the case of the death of Fred Alvarez and Patty Castro and Ralph Bogart you had a guy by the name of Jimmy Hughes who was arrested for murder I believe he was tried for the murder um Eventually, that was years later. But they yeah, were I think in his July trial last... ends up being interrupted, and the, the charges get dropped because evidence was lost. It, it's a very strange story. Yeah, again, catacombs. That's where I. That's where you go in with this situation. Um, very weird. Now, in this regard, there is a reporter. Uh, there was a station called w, uh, KSEQ that had a TV station that looked into this aspect. Uh, I'd recommend it to people if they want to take a look at this. Uh, I think it's the ABC affiliate in Palm Springs. Uh, they had looked into this, I think, in 2008, 2009. They did like a multi-part series. And the reporter who did this was a guy called Nathan Baca. So if you're interested in that, I would look that up on, um, <laughs> I would look that up on YouTube if people are interested in that. But um, we do know there was weapons testing going on, Cabazon Indian reservation, and some other tribal lands, right? So that gives us an idea that there were, how do I put it, that there were some, maybe sketchy is not the term, but secretive dealings going on, maybe not so secretive, but there were things that were going on that were certainly um, under the cloak, so I say, I would call it. So very sub rosa that were going on at Cabazon, Cabazon Indian Reservation. So when we look at what happened with Michael Reconosciuto, Reconosciuto says that he modified the PROMIS software, I think the dates were in the years 1983 and 1984. So, Cabazon, so um, Reconosciuto states, and I will say he allegedly 
Reconoscuto allegedly modified the Promise software with the backdoor feature, password protected, in 1983 and in 1984, and did it on Cabazon Indian Reservation land in Indio, California. And what also Reconoscuto stated was that he got a copy of the Promise software in order to modify it and work on it from a man named Earl Bryant, should say Dr. Earl Bryant. Um, this supposedly came from the Department of Justice and also through Wackenhut Security Corporation, which has government contacts. So this is what Reconoscuto himself had alleged and reported. And of course, he did time for Crystal Met, so that that killed his credibility with um, with this Inslaw affair, with the investigative investigation. Actually, I should say the report for the Inslaw affair, I believe, came out in 1992. I believe that the hearings were held in 1991. Uh, the House Judiciary Committee hearings were held in 1991. So I believe they were. So. The the committee held its hearings, but unfortunately, when you look at the Hamiltons, they have not been able, I guess you could say uh, the fairest way to put it is that justice has eluded the Hamiltons. Their company was driven into bankruptcy. They didn't end up getting the payments that they were denied from the Justice Department or the federal government in general. And what they found out was that not only was their proprietary software pirated, it was also sold to intelligence agencies uh, and to other countries. So, you know, I mean, they went through, they got drugged through the through the, the mire, the muck and mire here, the Hamiltons did. If we could, when it comes to this case, there's been numerous books written on it. And uh, of course, we haven't even really talked about the octopus. And, and Danny Kessler. And I, I only want to do that briefly because I want to get into Robert Maxwell. But what is the octopus and who was Danny Casolaro? Well, Danny Casolaro was essentially a freelance writer and I guess reporter. He was a guy from uh, – he was born in Virginia. And he had uh, basically came from a family. I think his dad and his uh, brother were both doctors. So Casolaro himself was a um, – he was a freelance writer, not unlike me. I was a freelance writer for, for 22 years. But what happened was that he had an interest in literature, I think poetry especially. But um, what happened was he got into, he got out of writing for a time and he got involved with owning and operating a computer uh, magazine. This was back in the what, early 80s or so. And um, eventually he sold off his publications, got back into writing. And what happened was he became familiar with the Promise Affair. He became aware. He got in contact with the Hamiltons. I believe he interviewed them, talked to them. And he got really interested in what was going on with the Inslaw Affair. Now, what happened was this eventually led him into what I believe he termed the octopus. And essentially what the octopus is, is, for lack of a better term, what the octopus is, is his term for, I hate to use the term cabal, 
but essentially a sort of group organization of U.S., former U.S., or probably some still active, but largely former U.S. intelligence operatives, right? Individuals, former government individuals. And these were people that were involved in a number of scandals and affairs. Supposedly, they were involved with the octopus, I'm sorry, the October surprise scandal, um, which is not really considered a scandal. Uh, it's basically considered a conspiracy theory. It's not really considered official. Um, yeah, so the October surprise, for people who don't know, it's the theory that elements involved with Ronald Reagan uh, made sure that Jimmy Carter wouldn't be able to uh, get the Iran hostage crisis situation solved before the election uh, because the deal with, was cut uh, with the Iranians. I mean, that's basically the theory, and, and uh, there's been some interesting books on it. Uh, Gary's sixth book uh, is is probably the best one. I, I, I'm i blanking on the name, but uh, Gary Sick was uh, working under Carter right. at the time. Yeah. yeah, That's right. I read his book years ago. I, I read think it's just called The October ago, Surprise, but go on. I think so. I think there was also um, – there was another book written about October Surprise, too. I'd read that years ago. Right, but and Gary's Robert Sick, Perry uh, wrote a lot surprise. about it as well. Right, right. So what happened is well, you have this octopus, right? <laughs> and it is basically this constellation and this consortium of these intelligence operatives, to some extent spies, former spies, and other kinds of operators that are involved in all in what become all of these scandals. October surprise is one aspect that they're involved in. Um, supposedly, I believe BCCI may be another one, if I'm not mistaken. The Bank of Credit so and Commerce International. Yeah. Precisely. Bank of Credit and Commerce International, which was a big scandal in the 1990s. Um, so what happened was working on Inslaw, working on the Promise Affair, eventually brought Casalero into finding out about this so-called octopus, as he called it, this sort of shadow cabal, this shadow group of spies and operatives and other individuals that had been involved in all kinds of clandestine activities, all kinds of um, secret operations, so to speak. And so there's actually a, it's real quick. I was going to say there's actually a book. Yeah. Um, I think it's by Roger Phelps, but I like the title of it, even though um, I'm, I, I think he gets a little bit too speculative at times, uh, which happens with a lot of books on the octopus and the 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 Insla affair. But uh, he he sort of calls the octopus not exactly the CIA, <laughs> which um, right. is an interesting way to put it. That's a good it's, way. Yeah, right. It reminds me of that British uh, comedy series, not the Nine O'clock News. <laughs> Except there's nothing funny about this. Uh, yeah, not the CIA. Um, I don't know what I would. I don't know what I would call the octopus. Um, I hate to use this term again. I hate to use it. I call them the cabal. And I know that sounds so conspiracy theorish, but I call them the cabal because it's a lot simpler. Anyway, um, so he was getting into that. He was getting into this octopus. I think he had um, pitched a book deal to, I believe, it was Little Brown. I know that he had a book he was yeah, working he, he on. Yeah, he actually was working on a book 
the book was going to be called Behold a Pill Horse, oddly enough. And I, I think he pitched it, it. He pitched it as actually like a true crime noir. So he's like, it's not mm. exactly. I'm not going to present it completely as nonfiction, but it's it's like a noir, like a, almost like a novel telling of what he viewed as a true story. Right. I think he was trying to look at it. I think he was trying to present fact through fiction, try to tell some degree of truth as he knew it and as he found out about it through a fictional lens and through a fictional form. I think that was probably the aspect of it. So what happened was he went to, he was looking into this and he had told his brother that he was getting death threats and people were telling him, you need to back off of this. And what happened was in 1991, August of 1991, Casalero went to Martinsburg, West Virginia, and he was there reportedly. Again, Rakanashudo is noted, uh, and again, um, people can take Rakanashudo in whatever way, shape, or form they can if they want to. Uh, I think Rakanashudo had noted in an interview that he was there, meaning Casalero was there in West Virginia to talk to someone from the IRS and to get data from them. It was an IRS data center. I know, you know, I was interviewed about the Inslaw and Octopus and and, um, and Casalero years ago, 2010. And the host, the show called Big Media Monarchy, um, the host was from West Virginia. And he had told me that you have a number of government offices and, I believe, branches, I think, in Martinsburg, West Virginia. So, because it's not far from D.C., um, so, um, so it's interesting, you know, some people may find it interesting that he was in West Virginia of all places, right? Now, Casalero reportedly was there to get some data, uh, according to Rakanashudo, to get some data from someone, a source he had in the IRS data center. Okay. We, he also supposedly had met with a William Turner. I believe he had worked for a defense contractor, if I'm not mistaken. But he had supposedly uh, met with a William Turner. There's also a report, I think a waitress or someone had noted that he was in the Sheridan Mot uh, Hotel. That's where he was staying in Martinsburg. And that's where he was found. That supposedly he had been in a bar with a man who was said to be uh, of Arab persuasion. Um, again, that's kind of, again, you know, take that for what it is, you know. That. So eventually he was found in, I believe it was room 517, 517 at the Sheridan Hotel with, in a tub of bloody water with his wrist slashed about a dozen times. So several cuts on one arm and several on another. The odd part about this is Danny Casalero himself was very squeamish when it came to blood, didn't want to even get blood tests. Uh, his family stated that he was uh, not, that he was not someone who uh, liked the side of, that, that, that dealt with blood uh, easily. So he was somebody who was very, very, uh, Skeptical of blood, I would say, if I could put it that way. So it's odd that this guy would have his wrist slashed. 
and that he would commit suicide because it was ruled as a suicide. He was found in his bloody tub of water in the bathroom with his wrist slash. So there were also odd aspects, like there were bloody towels on the floor. Um, and I believe that underneath Danny was found, uh, I believe it was a liner. You had a couple of beer cans. I think you had a razor blade. Um, so this is a very odd way of dying if one is to believe that he committed suicide for someone who is definitely afraid of blood. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a death that has been talked about uh, so much even in popular culture, right? I mean, uh, we had a whole Unsolved Mysteries segment that people can look up right. uh, about the death of Danny Castellero. And, uh, you, you know, it, it's captured people's imagination for some time. Yeah, in fact, that's where I first found out about the death of Danny Castellero and the in-slaw at Pearlman's Affair. I learned it from Unsolved Mysteries years ago. I was probably, I guess, in my 20s. I had see, I used to watch the show, and that's where I found out about it, and I guess I filed it away in my head. And years later, I started looking into it because I was intrigued with it, fascinated with it. Um, in fact, what's interesting about it is Casalero was not a well-known writer, but his death was covered by Newsweek. Um, they did a story in, I believe it was March of 1991. I'm sorry, not, not March. In, um, sorry, August of 1991, called The Victim of the Octopus. You also had the New York Times. They did a story called, with a headline, in August 17th of 1991. And their headline was, Reporter is Buried Amid Questions Over His Pursuit of Conspiracy Idea. So, Right away, you're beginning to see how not only the Inslaw and Promise affair was eventually seen when it got some public attention. It was eventually seen. It was seen, this may be in regards to the, the whole octopus, but eventually that came to probably deal with the Inslaw affair and Promise, even though this actually occurred. Ince law had its payments frozen by the federal government. It was very clear that the software itself was in some way enhanced more than it was with enhanced promise. It was modified. And as the Hamiltons found out, this was sold to other countries. I want to get into the Robert Maxwell angle, but um, I also wanted to get into this because, you know, I've read a, a fair bit about Inslaw. Uh, Promise and uh, Danny Casalero. And, and I'm curious uh, about what you think about some of the literature that has come out uh, around all of that, around the whole story of the octopus, because I, I do, I noticed you said earlier that you don't like calling it the cabal, because that sounds too conspiratorial. And I think at times there has been writing um, or talk uh, books on the whole story that I think make too many leaps or are too speculative. Um, there's also been characters involved with Rakana Sudo, like Ted Gunderson, who I think uh, went from like FBI to being a private investigator that get really out there with some of their claims. Uh, even, even an interesting book like Sherry Seymour's uh, The Last Circle. I think there's some things in there that I, I'm like, okay, this sounds a little bit, um, a little bit too good to be true, or a little bit out there. Uh, do you think there's, uh, been misinformation 
uh, around this story or people that, that have gotten too speculative with it at times? I think you may have a point there. You know, I've heard of Ted Gunderson, of course, and Cherry Seymour's book I'm, I've heard of, so I'm aware of that. Um, you know, my approach, I actually did write about the Inslaw and Octopus primarily. I mentioned Casalero. I did a piece for my blog. Um, my blog, I actually stopped writing my blog. The blog ended this February, so I wrote it for about four years. I uh, had a great time writing my blog, but I did a piece on Inslaw and Octopus. I believe it's called Labyrinth. And I wanted, I think that the challenge was for me because of the labyrinthine nature, obviously, of what we're discussing and the permutations. Uh, that's why I call it the catacomb. So many dark tunnels, so many uh, passageways, right? I wanted to write something that was kind of a very basic, uh, straightforward, relatively easy to follow article for people. And I think I did that with my piece. And so for me, my take has always been to follow the facts and to follow what is known and report what you can report about it. It's easy to speculate and to say this is probably the case or that is the case or that is the case. And without, I don't want to be unfair to uh, Gunderson or Seymour, uh, but one of the things that I do is I focus on what I can find out or what I focused on the research. Like I said, I read the House Judiciary Committee hearing report. I read the report years ago. So I looked at sort of the, the documents and what I could come across. And I treat what isn't factually based as just that. It's not factually based. It's alleged, it's reported. I was going to say, I think it gets difficult because uh, this case is also a case that got pursued by, um, you know, like the, the Lyndon LaRouche's people were involved in trying to report mm -hmm. report on like uh, the, the Inslaw affair. So I think there's a lot of people that end up writing the story off as just conspiracy lore, even if there is something to the Inslaw affair. And then there's also these people that I think get too speculative about it at times. And I think your approach is a bit yeah. different than that. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I, you know, I'm not, I don't have any, anywhere I want to go with it other than to let the facts take me to where it will go. Because it's interesting in, on it, in and of itself to me. That's what I'm, I mean, to me, the facts are interesting. What I know is interesting. So you don't need to speculate that much. At least for me, I don't, I don't think you need to really go too far. Because it's already intriguing. It's already fascinating. You don't need to add to what's already there, in my view, especially with the fact that Robert Maxwell was involved with promise reportedly. I mean, that, that's a whole other area that's interesting in and of itself. Even though I don't like Robert Maxwell, never did, and never found him that interesting a person, it is interesting that he was involved with promise. So, so let's get into that. Uh, for people that don't know, who was Robert Maxwell? I mean, he, he's known as a media mogul, but there's also uh, claims that he was probably involved with Mossad. And I, I think uh, there's been some journalists who have actually making have actually made a really good case for that, uh, particularly Martin Dillon, 
And uh, Gordon Thomas, who wrote uh, the book, I think it was called Robert Maxwell Super Spy, uh, that actually also gets into the uh, Inslaw uh, affair, um, the, right. the Promise software. Uh, so maybe you could talk a little bit about who Maxwell was beyond just the media mogul image and how it connects to Promise. Okay, so briefly, um, I believe he was born in he was born in Czechoslovakia, very kind of a modest town, small town, under the name Jan Ludwig Holt. Um, so Robert Maxwell obviously is not his real name. Came from a Orthodox Jewish family. In fact, he supposedly had gone to yeshiva when he was a young man. Um, and of course, you had the impact of World War II which is, I would say, what shaped Robert Maxwell, basically, World War II and the Holocaust, because Maxwell ended up losing some family members. They died during the Holocaust, I believe, in concentration camps. So basically, the reports are that he was, as a teenager, involved with Hungarian resistance, um, and he was also someone who had uh, entered the... He basically fought during World War II. I believe he, at one point he supposedly joined the Foreign Legion, French Foreign Legion, and then he ended up uh, being in the British British Army. He had been in the Queen's Royal Regiment. Uh, and so by the end of the war, uh, or at the end of the war, after 1945, about 1946, he's in Berlin, <laughs> and he's supposedly running a uh, newspaper for the Allies. And the story is that somebody comes into this newspaper, and he, this individual, this guy is the publisher of scientific journals, <laughs> scientific publications, and he has this entire backlog. Now, uh, one of um, one of Maxwell's biographers, and by the name of John Preston, I think he's noted this story himself. And he wrote a biography of Maxwell. John Preston did. He's a former editor, I believe, in the evening. Uh, with a couple of newspapers in, in England. And so what he notes that is a guy comes in, this man comes in and says, uh, he's got all of these publications because he's a publisher of scientific journal. And so he's got all kinds of journals he wants to get published and needs help. And so reportedly Maxwell saw this as an opportunity and he got involved with this company. Um, and he ended up becoming um, the managing director of a company called, I think it's a Springer Vertog. And that got merged, I think, with another publishing outfit. And so eventually, Maxwell got into the publishing business. He was publishing scientific publications, scientific journals. Um, and that was his primary business, um, I would say, its core business. It was publishing scientific publication. And he turned that company into Pergamon Press, which is what his basic operations were known as. I think it was Pergamon Press, Pergamon Business International. Those were Maxwell's companies. So he basically had merged together or got involved with this publisher. He had bought reportedly about most of the, most of the company. And another, another, you know, um, I think it was someone else had bought about a fourth of the company, if I'm not mistaken. But he bought most of the, of the firm. So he became a publisher of these 
science of, of a number of scientific publications and journals and um, materials. And that's that's where he started as a publisher. That's where he started. Um, now, Maxwell himself was uh, reportedly fluent in a number of languages, something like eight languages. So he was uh, a rather, perhaps we could say a cunning linguist. You could say that, um, or I say that, possibly. Um, the problem with Maxwell is he really wanted to own a newspaper. And eventually, in 1984, he bought the Daily Mirror in England. Because, and of course, he became a rival to Rupert Murdoch, who was a press baron, as most people, if they've heard the name, are probably aware. Uh, of course, Rupert Murdoch uh, went on to help found the Fox News Corporation here in the United States, which was created, I believe, from Metro Media, which he had bought, Metro Media Corporation here. But anyway, Maxwell himself ended up buying the Daily Mirror in 1984. So he finally got a newspaper. And he became this publisher of scientific periodicals and publications. He became a newspaper guru finally in the 80s. Um, and he was a guy who knew a lot of well-known figures, a lot of celebrities, a lot of politicians. He knew Ronald Reagan. He knew other prominent and famous people. So um, one aspect of him that's kind of interesting to me was the fact that he was known as the king of Bulgaria, of all things. For example, uh, I believe it was the BBC program Newsnight did an investigation in 1991, which looked into his dealings in Bulgaria. It was kind of interesting. Um, he was uh, he had, I think, a home in Sofia, which was the capital of Bulgaria. And it was interesting. He was um, effusively praiseworthy of uh, Todor Zivkov, who was the general secretary of Bulgaria and wrote Bulgaria for a lot of years. In fact, Maxwell had printed his uh, book, printed a book, Pergamon Press had printed a book. Now, reportedly, BBC's 1991 Newsnight investigation had found that he had paid for uh, money for property. I think it was like a lease of 50 years, about 150,000 British pounds, equivalent in pounds. I think it was like in Bulgarian currency, it was like over $6 million. And this led to, uh, included with this deal, was that it was tax-free profits for about five years. So it was um, very interesting. Not only that, but another, another deal that Maxwell was involved in. He was involved in a number of deals. Again, this 1991 Newsnight investigation, people could check this out on YouTube. They had found that he had been involved in um, a deal where uh, ministers in Bulgaria were sending millions of dollars. I guess they wanted to invest it in stocks or invested in other kinds of assets outside of Bulgaria. So they were taking this from currency reserves in Bulgaria. Uh, the number was about 200 million. Reportedly, about 50 million may have been invested, at least known to have been invested. And this was done with Maxwell as a kind of uh, middleman, as a as a part of this. It was through his London and Bishopgate International Investment Management PLC company. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's very clear that uh, Maxwell himself not only knew he not only knew people um, in the U.S. and elsewhere, uh, certainly in the U.K., 
but he also knew people internationally, right? And the interesting thing is, even though Maxwell was a, by any measure, a capitalist, uh, by any measure, a, uh, a businessman, he was very, he was not averse at all in dealing with communist nations. Bulgaria at the time was a communist country. And the reports are that he was uh, quite friendly, when, even when he was working as an officer in the British Army, uh, working as a, even when he was working as an officer in the British Army, supposedly the talk was that he was spending a lot of time in the Soviet sector of Berlin. Um, there was talk about that. So he was somebody who could um, do deals or, or interact with people in Moscow, for example, in Russia, as well as Bulgaria, and as well as in other capitalist countries. Of course, the UK, where he, where he ended up living, and the US and elsewhere. So that was the interesting thing about him. I, I get, like I said, personally, I never liked him. This is not to say that he was a crypto communist or anything, though. No, I think he was a he open was opportunist. Yeah. That's what he was. I mean, you know, he's the best that you could say about Maxwell, who, when I knew about him as a teenager, was primarily as a press baron. Um, I would say that I, I despised Maxwell. I'll just come out and say it. I despised Maxwell. I didn't like him at all. Um, and from my having looked into him in regards to promise and his life, what I did look into in terms of his life, I see I was thoroughly and entirely justified in that appraisal. I was going to ask, are you familiar with the whole claims that he had ties to Israeli intelligence, or is that not really? Right. Well, that's what gets into the whole promise aspect, right? So um, essentially what happened was this. You know, we had, I had mentioned prior that it was clear the U.S. government had pirated promise and sold it as software, sold it to other countries, to other intelligence agencies, to other, to other, um, other entities, foreign entities, right? So what happened was that what, what's interesting is this gets into what I call the Israeli pivot in regards to um, the promise affair. Now, what happened is this. Reportedly, Hamilton, what happened is that Hamilton was visited by a man by the name of Dr. Ben Orr. Dr. Ben Orr was reportedly a prosecutor in Israel. So he was interested in looking at the Promise software. Again, as I mentioned before, the Promise software was intended for U.S. attorneys' offices, federal prosecutors' offices. And so this Dr. Ben Orr was allegedly a prosecutor. And so I believe that the contact was a uh, project manager at the DOJ, a Madison Brewer, who had, um, I think, been involved with this somehow. So what happened was Dr. Orr, came to visit not only Hamilton, but I think eventually visited the, D the DOJ. This was uh, reportedly in 1983. 
And so what happened was that he saw the software, he saw what it could do, and he ended up getting a copy of Promise from, I believe, the DOJ. Uh, the date that I've seen is May 6, 1983, but I'll just say in 1983. So doc, this Dr. Ben Orr got the promise, or what I would call enhanced, or what is known as enhanced promise. Here's the problem. There was no Dr. Ben Orr. didn't exist. Dr. Ben Orr was, in reality, a spy master by the name of Rafi Aitan. And Rafi Aitan was a notorious part of Israeli intelligence services. The Suarobad the, is, or the belief is that Aitan was the handler for a, uh, for the, a spy by the name of Jonathan Pollard, who had spied on the Navy Yard Field Operational Intelligence Office. So he had spied on the U.S. Navy. Providing right. It's, all it's interesting. Of, uh... I think Pollard was only released from prison like a year, maybe a few years ago. Uh, yeah. Trump uh, actually Trump actually uh, pardoned, when he was on his way out of office, he pardoned Avi Amsella, who was like the handler uh, for Jonathan Pollard. And, uh, you know, Pollard is, is very notorious in D.C. I mean, uh, even people like yeah. Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld hated Pollard. They said he should never ever get out of prison. He endangered um, right. our intel agents. Uh, but he was basically um, spying on, on the U.S. Oh, yeah. Not only that, he was stealing the store. I mean, the Pollard case was so bad. What I recall of the Pollard case, he was, he was, he was uh, taking out, he was making sure materials went out, classified, sensitive information was going out, you know, on a continual basis. He was giving the store away. And, right, and he, was, he was working as an intelligence analyst uh, for the United States yeah. government. But go on. Yeah. It was such an embarrassment. I mean, Pollard's probably one of the worst spies to ever uh, operate in the United States. No doubt in my mind. I just wanted to say real quick, it's interesting with Pollard because uh, there will be people that say, oh, he um, – he only gave, uh, you know, information, uh, and he only did espionage on behalf of uh, Israel, and Israel's a friend of the U.S., so it's not a big deal. But I think Pollard actually admitted to uh, sort of shopping his services uh, to other countries. So, you know, he huh? – <laughs> a lot of people did not like Pollard. Uh, uh, George Tennant is another person that really had an issue with um, Jonathan course, Pollard. Because yeah. he secrets away. They, I would make it make absolute sense. I'm not a fan of those individuals you mentioned, but it makes absolute sense that they would dislike Pollard. Like I said, Pollard's one of the worst spies I've seen in terms of the um, in the annals of uh, agents and, and whether it's uh, double agents or agents operating in the United States. Pollard is one of the worst. Pollard's one of the worst. There's no doubt. I mean, you you can compare to people like Robert Hansen who was with the FBI. And, and and others. I mean, I mean this. I mean, what what Pollard did was just horrific from an intelligence standpoint. But but we've gone off topic. Go back to uh, we we should get back to Maxwell. So anyway, yeah, Rafi Aitan was notorious. He was a notorious 
member of Israeli intelligence. Uh, I think primarily Mossad, but he was certainly involved in intelligence agencies in Israel. One of the things he was involved in was what was known as Lekem. It was a kind of separate agency for a time, and it was a scientific Bureau of Scientific Relations. So they dealt with technical and scientific aspects. They would have their agents or their operatives or their personnel looking at all kinds of scientific information, all kinds of journals, all kinds of technology materials, all kinds of stuff. And they were sending, from what I understand, numerous materials back to Israel. And so um, he was involved with he was involved with uh, Lekem. I think Lekem eventually got shuttered. But that was what he was involved with. So Aitan became involved with Promise. And so he got, he brought on board a guy by the name of Ari ben Menashe. And Ari ben Menashe was another guy who had been involved with Israeli intelligence. But he had, I think, run afoul of the agencies there um, or intelligence agencies in Israel. And he got involved with Aitan. And so what um, Ben Menashe did was he got in contact with a um, he got in contact with a uh, programmer and developer in California, a uh, guy he knew, and so this guy was going to modify, much like with Michael Reconosciuto, this guy was brought in to modify the promise, the copy of promise. Right, they modify the software. What I heard, or for what I understand, there was some kind of chip that was put in, but there was modification done. So this is a separate track, just so we're trying to keep track. What Kanashiro had said, he had modified it at, what was it, Cavazon Indian Reservation in India. Then you have uh, Ari Ben Manash, he has this programmer, this guy who's working in Silicon Valley or involved in computer programming or computer <coughs> technology work on, they paid him a few thousand dollars to go and do this. So, um, now, Aitan was familiar with Earl Bryant. Now, Earl Bryant, as I had mentioned before, Dr. Earl Bryant, he was someone um, involved with Promise because he had worked with the Reagan administration. Now, when I say Reagan administration, the first Reagan administration, which was in California, when Reagan was governor of California, in what, the mid to late 60s and early, and then the 70s, uh, Brian had been director of the Department of Health in California. And reportedly when Reagan had been running for office, the scuttlebutt is that Brian had supposedly been involved in the October surprise scandal. Um, well, some would call it conspiracy, I'll call it scandal. And he had been involved with helping make contact without going into a lot of uh, discussion about the October surprise, he was involved with supposedly helping with the contacts and helping arrange that that would go smoothly. And for those who don't know, basically it was delaying the release of hostages in Iran where the uh, United States embassy personnel had been kept hostage in Iran for a number and number of days, weeks, months. And delaying the release until Reagan got uh, elected in 1980. Uh, and defeated Ron, uh, Jimmy Carter. And, of course, Reagan actually did defeat Jimmy Carter in 1980, and on the day of inauguration, hostages were released. 
Make it that what you will. But in any event, that was October's surprise. So as a supposed reward, so the story goes, for his role in that, Brian got the Promise software. Now, Brian had established a company called Hadron Technologies Incorporated. And so what he reportedly did was sell the Promise software around the world. Reports have it 80 countries that he may have sold the Promise software to, what you would call enhanced Promise and the modified Promise software. And of course, Michael Reconoshito says it was Earl Bryan that gave him the Promise software and Earl Bryan that, that had got involved in, in, in partly in his efforts in regards to the Promise software and the Promise program. Um, that Brian had been involved with Reconoshito, according to Reconoshito. He'd gotten the program from him, and he obviously had been involved in, I guess, Reconoshito's working on the Promise software in some way, shape, or form. Now, um, a kind of interesting development uh, was also that you also had Promise that was supposedly sold also by a firm in Little Rock, Arkansas called Systematics, Inc. And this company was owned by Jackson Stevens. Um, Jackson Stevens um, owned not only Systematics, but the Worthen Banking Corporation. And he was someone who had been involved um, not only with Republicans, but also with Bill Clinton. And he had provided financing to Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign. Um, and reportedly, from what I understand, um, he, had, uh, he was uh, involved in banking system, um, Jackson Stevens was. But I won't go too far into that. Um, I won't go far into it. Like I said, catacombs, digressions, diversions, you can see with the story. Since you had mentioned Ari ben Menashe, this is another figure. Right. I, I think we have to say this because uh, he's another figure that I think a lot of people have questioned over time. I mean, uh, Craig Unger, uh, the journalist who wrote um, House of Bush, House of Saud, has said that, like, uh, he essentially said that, you know, uh, Ari ben Menashe would display, like, a, a great knowledge of. Uh, you know, Israeli intelligence, uh, spycraft and whatnot, but he would also weave a lot of tall tales. Um, it, it, it begins, mm -hmm. it gets weird for me because I think when you're dealing with characters like Menashe and, um, mm -hmm. and Reconosudo, I think you get a lot of, um, truth mixed in with, uh, possible fabrication because they have their own agendas. Yeah. I mean, it really is a, um, right. I, I think this is like a, it is like the catacombs. Um, it's it's a world of deceit and uh, people with their own agendas, uh, people telling half truths, truths and lies. Uh, it's almost impossible to like fully untangle. Right. You know, Bill Hamilton was quoted. William Hamilton was quoted once as saying, "I would not trust any clandestine intelligence operative uh, for any government because." Um, Lying and cheating is part of their official duty. So that goes along with what you were saying. Um, basically, when you deal with operators, like someone like Ari ben Menashe, you have to at least think that he's telling 25% of the truth. 
and probably 75% lie. That's basically what you have to believe. See, with intelligence operatives, spies, uh, analysts, anyone involved in the intelligence op operative work or intelligence gathering on any agency, it's all about deception. Deception is part of the game. So that's why I said, at best, maybe with Ari ben Menash, 25% might be true. 75% probably is untrue. So that's the way I look at it when you look at it, I look at intelligence. I don't really believe, yeah, I don't really believe intelligence agencies or people involved in intelligence agencies. I don't. It's just lying is part of spycraft. It, well, I should say lying is part of tradecraft, as they say in the intelligence parlance. It's just a part of uh, operational procedure with it. So, I, you know, again, with Ari Bar Minaj, a good guide that I would recommend, maybe believe 25% of what he says and disbelieve 75%. The percentages will vary for people. That's my recommendation. So in any event, Ben Minaj, of course, as I had noted, so Earl Bryan um, had been selling, reportedly selling this software. But you're looking at Rafi Aitan, and Aitan was aware of Brian, but he knew that Brian wouldn't work for his purposes. So he couldn't enlist Brian to sell their version of Promise, right? So reportedly, or supposedly, both Aitan and Minaj thought of someone, Robert Maxwell. As I mentioned before, Maxwell had a lot of uh, contacts because of his status as, in the 80s, the owner of the Daily Mirror, as a publishing mogul, basically, um, as a book publisher, as a publisher of scientific publications, but more importantly, as a newspaper magnet at this point. Um, and they felt Maxwell was the right salesman. Now, why was Maxwell seen as the right salesman? Well, reportedly, and I say reportedly, and I'll also use the term allegedly, um, Maxwell was involved with Mossad. He supposedly was someone who was, I will say, used by Mossad. Um, he was a big supporter of Israel, uh, very pro-Israel. And what occurred in regards to someone like Maxwell is that what Maxwell had was um, he had companies in Israel. So he had several firms in Israel. And one of them was a computer firm called Degum. And these firms were used as fronts for the Mossad. So Mossad could you have their agents work as, quote, employees of Maxwell's company when they were on um, jaunts around the world. I hate to use the term mission, I'll just use jaunts around the world. When they were doing company business, if people understand what I mean by that. Um, so he had a company, several companies he owned in Israel. One of them was Dagum Computers. Um, and so what happened was that Maxwell was approached about, reportedly approached, about selling promise. And anyone who's looked into 
Maxwell, even in a minor way, and I looked into him in a minor way. Again, I'm not a fan of Maxwell. It was clear he was having money problems because this guy, as I'll touch on a little later, this guy had major problems. Although banks were giving him money at times, giving him money or were very happy to give him money, um, he eventually got to a point where his money problems ended up being the death of him. And there are people who believe that's exactly what happened. I won't get into that. But so what happened was this. Allegedly and reportedly, Maxwell's approach, he agreed to sell Probus, and he went off and he did just that. He went and sold it to a number of countries. Some of the countries reportedly that he sold it to, um, well, obviously Bulgaria, which he had a relationship with. He had a home in Bulgaria or a compound in Bulgaria. Um, Nicaragua, Colombia, Poland, Egypt. Belgium, Thailand, um, reportedly also Australia, New Zealand, and uh, possibly China and uh, Russia through the KGB. So these were a few countries or a number of countries that he had sold it. I think South Africa and Zimbabwe were also some countries that um, Maxwell sold Chromis to. And to be fair, you know, Maxwell seemed to be kind of the perfect frontman for the Israelis, right? Here's this big-time newspaper owner, big-time press baron, and a businessman. And he knew enough people. He had enough contacts internationally, globally, where he could arrange meetings. People would meet with him, and he could conduct these affairs, and he could go and sell the software. So supposedly, Hamilton himself, I mean, um, sorry, Maxwell himself, had got a, uh, a slice of the profits of selling promise, which is why he did it. Anyway, he needed money um, and went out and he was doing it. And he was selling the promise software reportedly to a number of countries, a number of which I have stated. I guess before we wrap up here, uh, what else can we say about Maxwell? Because, um, I mean, you could even get into other aspects of his life. Uh, like, uh, according to Minosh, uh, Maxwell is tied into the whole Mordecai Venunu affair where uh, Venunu mm. uh, is working for the Israelis and he basically blows the whistle on the nuclear pro- program. And uh, supposedly, uh, according to Minosh, um, I think Maxwell uh, was tipped off about this and then told someone at the embassy and that's how uh, Mossad ended up capturing uh, Venunu. I could be getting some of those details wrong. It's a bit hazy because there's there's so many stories that, that, that have come out um, over the years about Maxwell. And then, of course, I think there's a renewed interest in Robert Maxwell because, of course, uh, you right. know, his daughter, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, the, um, you know, partner in crime of uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's a renewed interest. And I always found it interesting. I think the yacht that uh, Robert Maxwell dies on uh, – allegedly falls falls to his death, uh, falls overboard. That was called the Lady Ghislaine. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, this is one of those weird, you know, uh, tales, I guess. Right. So the, the, the really, the really uh, bothersome aspect of Maxwell's involvement was with Promise was that he was trying to sell Promise to a U.S. agent. To a um, 
to basically um, Sandia National Laboratory, which is part of Los Alamos complex in New Mexico. And he had made a couple of trips there, I think about four trips at one point. And he was trying to sell it in the 80s, I think 1985. And that that aspect has been pretty much kept under wraps, from what I understand, right? Uh, that's been pretty much kept under wraps, was his whole effort to do it. And he was trying to, I believe, do it under a company he had purchased in Virginia called Information on Demand. So that aspect in regards to Sandia National Laboratory, that's where it really gets uh, really dicey in regards to Maxwell. Again, like I said, he was an opportunist. And supposedly, you know, that, that, that has been pretty much quashed that I can think of. You know, I think the FBI had looked into it. They may have uh, opened a 105 file, if I'm not mistaken. I believe that's FBI counter intel. Uh, they may have opened a 105 file on it. Uh, but pretty much uh, the whole affair was uh, pretty much quashed that I can think of or has been kept under wraps. Again, this is in the height of the Reagan administration. And, you know, Maxwell knew Reagan. You know, they're fairly friendly. So um, here's what I would say. Um, right. So um, so it's very interesting because, you know, uh, you know, what happened was, you know, he was, um, I think he was actually, the FBI was looking into him. And again, eventually, I think by 1985, they had the, pretty much the office of the FBI in New Mexico was told, you know, keep this, uh, stop investigating him, stop looking into him. Because um, there was a formal investigating, investigation starting in June of 1984, looking into what had happened at Sandia National Laboratory in regards to uh, Maxwell trying to sell Chromis to uh, Sandia and basically the Los Alamos complex. And, and again, through information on demand, which he had bought, I believe, in 1982. He bought that company in Virginia, which was based in Virginia. Um, so in regards to Maxwell himself, Maxwell um, eventually ran into massive financial problems. Um, the reports are, I've seen reports that say he was over $2 billion in the red. Um, John Preston, his biographer, one of his biographers, noted that supposedly, I believe it was found out after he died, that he was 750 million pounds, British pounds, in debt. Um, and that, of course, what Maxwell had done was basically steal and rob from Rob Blind the pension fund of the Daily Mirror, which is the newspaper that he owned. Supposedly, he had stolen $350 million, uh from the Daily Mirror. So you're talking about someone who had massive financial problems near his death. 
banks were not loaning to him. Uh, he was trying to get money wherever he could get it because he was behind. He was in arrears. And the scuttlebutt, which I won't go into, um, was that his, well, his death is mysterious because he, uh, his funeral was held at the Mount of Olives in about November of 1991. They had all these dignitaries there, uh, certainly a huge number of Israeli dignitaries, former intel chiefs. Uh, his eulogy was stated, uh, was given by, I believe, the um, prime minister at the time. And so um, his death is seen as very, very, his death is mysterious. Uh, I won't go into the theories about his death. I won't go into that there. But the belief is that he was murdered, which I won't go into detail about. But when we look at this entire aspect, when we look at the inslaw and promise and the permutations of it, we see a sort of web of deception. We see a lot of not just gray, but I would say, um, you know, um, I really say beyond gray to me, gray affairs, kind of an odd way to put it. When we look at this, we look at something that is so complicated and so convoluted. Again, I tried to keep it as simple as possible, and I tried to keep it as, you know, I think as easy to follow as possible, uh, primarily by looking at both Inslaw, Promise, and then this Israeli connection with Maxwell, which is admittedly kind of interesting, not only because Rafi Aiton was involved, uh, notorious yeah, and, figure. And, and Rafi Aiton, for people that don't know, I mean, he was the head of uh, Menachem Begin's counterterror division. Um, and you, you are correct, uh, the, the, the Prime Minister of Israel was at Maxwell's funeral. I believe at the time that was uh, uh, Yitzhak uh, Shemir. So uh, just getting those uh, little bit of facts out of the way. Right. And so, you know, you know I've looked into... Um, of course, I've been interviewed about this before, and I was interviewed briefly uh, recently about it on another on another show. Was, was that um, William Ramsey? But yeah, William Ramsey. William investigates. Ramsey investigates. And I looked into. I was on William Ramsey investigates, and I but I was looking into Danny Casalero and of course Inslaw and Promise. Um, but I wanted to kind of get into this aspect because I think it's also indicative of the shadowy uh, nexus that informs Inslaw, uh, the Promise software and its and its impact once it was stolen, once it was taken, once it was pirated, and once it was sold. So I, I was going to say, I understand your interest in it, but you had sort of said you didn't want to get too deep in the weeds uh, with regards to Maxwell's death. Why is that? And um, I mean, do, can you tease it out at all for us? Like, wh why are there people that believe it was murdered? I think because of his reported ties to Israeli intelligence, Mossad. The belief was that they got tired of him and they decided he had to go. That's the belief that I've heard. I will say this. When you deal with intelligence agencies, you don't use them. They use you. And when they're done with you, they are done with you. In closing here, it's funny because uh, you talk about the catacombs. Um, now, Robert Maxwell mm -hmm. has ties to these catacombs 
what do you make of his daughter ending up uh, being involved in her own catacombs? Um, why, why, why are both the Maxwells so notorious? I guess is there mm-hmm. is there just some weird connection here? Is it just is this the world of um, you know people that operate in a sort of power elite space? Uh, why, why do you think the Maxwell family has generations now of controversy? Right, that's that's an interesting point. I haven't looked into his daughter in that aspect, which, again, the Maxwell themselves don't concern me. But Maxwell himself was an opportunist. He was a survivor. I will give, it to, I'll give that to him. He was a survivor. You got to hand him to him there. He was a guy who probably would have and could have been shot and killed during World War II. Could have ended up on the other side of a bullet. But he managed to survive, and he managed to thrive for a while. But um, he's the kind of character you could never trust, could never trust. And, again, I don't know much about his daughter because I haven't looked into his other family affairs. I'm not a biographer of Maxwell, so I'm not terribly interested in the man. I only looked into him a little because of um, primarily in regards to promise. And the fact that he was a salesman reportedly for promise is interesting. In fact, it's the most interesting thing. Most people would say Maxwell's fascinating. He's not fascinating to me. He's just an opportunist and a thief. But when it comes to promise, he is interesting. And I will say that about it. So in closing, uh, what do you help listeners get out of this conversation, uh, not just in regards to Maxwell, but uh, just uh, the promise story as a whole? Well, I would say that what it does is shine a light on the very, very, very dark corners of government, um, of intelligence. And what it says is we live in a world where there was a great deal of sub rosa activity. The problem is to decipher what is true about the sub rosa activity from what is false. And the problem with intelligence activity, intelligence-oriented, um, and shadowy deals is they're shadowy for a reason. You know, if it was, you know, if it were a light that didn't produce a shadow, if it were all in the light as opposed to a certain amount of light that produces shadows, you know, we'd get clarity. But that's the way these things operate. That's the way these affairs operate. They're meant to operate in this kind of um, penumbra-like world, this kind of world of shadows, this world of, if you're involving intelligence, a world of tradecraft. Um, if you're talking about opportunists, a world of thievery and of uh, trying to get your cut and trying to operate however you see fit. Try, trying and to be so, a good capitalist. <laughs> Well, yeah, trying to be a good capitalist, even for someone like Maxwell in communist country like Bulgaria. Again, you know, it shows you the world that we live in. More often than not, it's very easy for people to kind of believe what they were raised with and believe what they've come to know as the way reality works. But reality is complicated. And reality is not simply based on good and evil, but based on the intersection of good and evil. 
the gray world, the world that is uh, intersection and a dovetailing of idealism on the one hand and malevolent and malevolence on the other. Well, often the, the the intersection I would say almost between you know idealism and then you know malevolent material interests even. <laughs> You know, it gets... Uh... You could say that's a third joint that comes up, right? You know, you got that, you got that, and you've got material interest, right? But that's easy because it's greed. It's self-interest. It, it enhanced self-interest, if I could call it that. Greed is enhanced self-interest. So you've got all those factors going in. And people don't want to see that, and 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 I understand why they don't want to see it, but it's part of how the world works. We live in a world that is complicated, and it's complicated because of aspects like this, because of Inslaw and the promise of it. Well, Albert Lanier, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax Views. Please let my listeners know uh, how they can keep up with your work. I know you have a new YouTube channel. Can you just right. wrap up uh, in, in the next maybe two minutes uh, letting my listeners know how they can keep up with you? Right. I'm currently on a media tour. I am um, promoting my official YouTube channel. I'm pretty much new to YouTube, so I've never been on YouTube before. Uh, prior to recently, I have another channel where I'm doing live streaming, so I just got on YouTube. This is my official YouTube channel, though. Uh, it's called Writer Albert Lanier. Um, I'm looking to, of course, focus on writing, aspects of being a writer and aspects of writing. I have a couple of formats or ideas for uh, programs that I have, quote unquote, for my YouTube channel. Um, but right now it's relatively new. It's been around the, uh, for about a couple of weeks. So <clears throat> I'm in the, pro it's already been constructed. So you go past construction phase, we're in promotion phase. And so I'm doing a media tour to promote my YouTube channel. The name of my channel, Writer Albert Lanier. And again, you'll find that on YouTube. Again, that's writer Albert Lanier. And uh, Albert, I'm, I, I have to let you know, I did not know you were aware uh, so much of the Pollard case. I may have to have you on again to talk about that at some point. But oh. th thank you so yeah, much. I remember I that when I was in high school. I think when I was younger. I was high school or I'm trying to remember when that came out. Yeah. Oh, that's a horrible case. Horrible, horrible, horrible. Well, thank you again, Albert Lanier. All right. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Albert Lanier. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. All the information for how you can support this show financially is available there. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. 
But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.